Yo, what's up? Hello. This is Ergo. It is. I'm Damon. I'm Daniel. We are here, as we always are, showcasing strong voices, reshaping and building the city of Chicago for the more equitable and creative. And we did that today. Yes. For sure. We have a great, significant guest here with us. Perhaps our first silver fox. <laughs> That's not what he's most known for. <laughs> But yeah, I said that he's he's killing that game. I feel like if that if you're playing Ergo Bingo out there, you can finally <laughs> check that one off. We got Jamie Calvin of the Invisible Institute. Jamie Calvin is an author and journalist based here in Chicago. He's the founder of the Invisible Institute, and he was awarded in 2017 the Hillman Prize for Web Journalism for the article "Code of Silence," which he wrote for the Intercept. He also is the journalist who fought for the release of the Laquan McDonald video um, and has been able to get access to all kinds of police misconduct files here in Chicago, and that's probably what he's best known for. But as we get into in the conversation, he's done a whole bunch of stuff and, you know, kind of occupies an interesting spot in the culture and in the media ecosystem of the city. Yeah, this is this is a meaty one for all the Ergo fans, so we really hope you enjoy this conversation. If you're here looking for giggles, you might, yeah, you get, might some. get some giggles. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, before we get to the conversation, a couple community announcements. First off... On the 6th at The Empty Bottle is the next edition of Digital Freshness. This one features Kemba from my hometown of the Bronx. Have I ever mentioned to you that I was from the Bronx? Oh, are you? (laughs) (laughs) And then also on that show are Brittany Carter and Khalid B. And then on the 11th at the Poetry Foundation is the book launch of Halal If You Hear Me, which is an anthology in the Breakbeat Poets series edited by Ergo alums Fatima Askar and Safia El-Hilo. Without any further ado... Let's get to our conversation with Jamie Calvin. He's got a hot 16. I'll put it right up top. <laughs> Let's get to it. Yeah. What's your least favorite kind of email to get? Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> um, Hello. Uh, yeah, right. I mean, it's it's when somebody asks me, and often it's, uh, I mean, I have a soft spot for young student reporters and stuff. When somebody asks me questions and wants me to to write them an extended response, mm, mm-hmm. I go, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not going to happen. Here are my seven questions. Could you please expound? Exactly. Yeah. The other thing that we get a lot of, often addressed to me and through our tip line at the Invisible Institute, is, um, you know, dear Mr. Calvin, only you can get yeah. my son out of prison or investigate mm. this case. You know, it's poignant and you just feel your kind of inadequacy yeah. to respond. Yeah, that's a, a, that's, a that's least real. favorite in a different way, yeah. yeah. That's yeah. a real heartstring puller. I would be susceptible to that. If people, <laughs> I think people who I work with have figured that out and like flattery could, could get me out of my comfort zone a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> if, if, if you start a request with only you, yeah. I think I'm... <laughs> That's what Damon's been trying to prevent forest fires for months now. <laughs> Let, let's go ahead and yeah, yeah, yeah. jump, and jump in. in. We have a, a, a very special guest in the studio we do. with us today. Jamie Calvin is here. Put up, put up, put up. Oh, it's great to be here. Uh, I don't do animal noises, but it's really wonderful to be with you guys. Is that like a firm policy? <laughs> it's just a, a lack of fluency. Uh, okay, all right. But you knew that. You knew that about that. <laughs> coming, coming, in. coming into the room. I have limited self-knowledge. <laughs> there's some things I know. So we, we always like to start uh, with the same two-part question. In this time, in this moment, this season, how is the world treating you and how are you treating the world, Jamie? 
Hmm. I yeah. Given my limited self knowledge, I'm not sure about the second question. Um, I'm actually excited about the state of our immediate world in Chicago hmm. right now. Um, you know, as chaotic as things are, um, as ugly as the mayoral campaign is, as up for grabs as all sorts of things are, this feels like a huge moment of opportunity. Hmm. Does it feel like more or less of a moment of opportunity than it did six months ago when the campaigns were in a different place? Actually, it feels more. Uh, six months ago, I wrote a piece in which I expressed kind of mild anxiety about mm-hmm. what was you know, headed our way yeah. because you had the – the two trials arising out of the Laquan McDonald murder. Mm-hmm. You had the consent decree process yeah. coming online. You had 14 candidates, you know, queuing up for the mayoral election. You had the the FOP, the union, mm-hmm. fraternal order of the police in a really intransigent posture. You had Trump, you know, yeah. foolishness about Chicago. And it felt like all this stuff could converge in a really noisy, chaotic, confusing, miseducating way. Mm -hmm. A perfect storm of bullshit. Yeah, a perfect (laughs) storm of bullshit. And in fact, that didn't happen. Mm. Things have kind of broken our way pretty consistently. Yeah. And so the amazing sort of historical opening that was created by the post-Laquan McDonald (laughs) events remains open. Yeah. And the challenge now, I think, for everybody is to kind of elevate our games and be worthy of this moment. So I'm going to put a pin in that moment and just let's let's go and give a little context about uh, who you are and how you do what you sure. do. Good, good. I was about to go. That's good. Good thing. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, you know, I can give my external view of how I see the work you do fitting in, but I'm yeah. curious for you, kind of another two-parter. One, how do you describe, like in a couple of sentences, what it is you do and what the Invisible Institute does. And then also, just internally, how do you think about your work kind of in the ecosystem of, you know, city changing and world changing? Hmm. So I'm fundamentally a writer, you know, and I often joke that I'm, um, in terms of the way I write and uh, my particular toolkit, I'm a 19th century novelist <laughs> who now finds himself surrounded by. You got it. the look. Yeah, no, <laughs> the look posture. <laughs> but I'm surrounded, you know, so I like to do, you know, to write Moby Dick, you know, mm-hmm. long form, digressive narrative. Uh, I can see you in workshop with Emerson. That's <laughs> where I, but that's how I think. Yeah, yeah. That's how I think. And that's how I learn things. And through a a really fascinating course over the years, I now find myself, you know, associated with um, the Invisible Institute, which we describe as a journalism production company. Hmm. But I would say maybe it's better described – I mean, we are that, but it's better described as a kind of narrative design studio. So it's this team of folks that includes data scientists and, you know, developers – uh, still photographers, doc- documentary makers, um, and a lawyer, an array of people who, um, you know, kind of approach every occasion with this central question, you know, how do we best tell this story with the range of platforms and tools that are now available to us? Yeah. Sometimes it's a 19th century novel, but sometimes it's a kick-ass database, uh, yeah. you know, police disciplinary information or a podcast. So, you know, it's kind of evolved. I can tell more about the backstory, but it kind of evolved out of my personal practice and now has become a, a sort of singular institutional 
common effort of yeah. a group of people. So uh, I'll put it to you. Would you prefer to go more of that backstory to get that in the conversation or jump back to the moment we're in now and then go back? So I think the backstory probably sure. is, is useful. Okay. Um, I ended up spending well over a decade, closer to 15 years, immersed in high-rise public housing on the South Side during its final chapter. Mm-hmm. You know, we're talking completely abandoned communities. Um, everybody knew that they were going to be demolished. And um, most of my time was spent at Stateway Gardens on South State Street. So the development directly to the north of the Robert Taylor Homes, okay. sort of continuous with the Robert Taylor So State Taylor Street Homes. and what's the, what the 35th, 35th, 39th uh, state to the Dan Ryan. Okay. And, and that was fundamentally eight square blocks of the south side, <laughs> but an amazing eight square blocks. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And... Um, you know, incredibly impoverished, uh, embattled place. Yeah. And my work and my practice and much of the work that the Invisible Institute does to this day sort of arose out of the those eight square blocks. Yeah. And, you know, I had a range of different functions there. I uh, created an organization called the Neighborhood Conservation Corps, that created economic alternatives for guys in the street organizations or coming out of prison, was formally an advisor to the elected resident council, so was involved in negotiations with the city, the police, private Mm -hmm. developers, HUD. Around 1999-2000, having finished a book I was working on in my the writerly writerly dimension (laughs) of my life about something else, I began to document conditions there. Began publishing from a vacant unit, something called the View from the Ground, mm-hmm. um, in a five-bedroom vacant vacant unit on the first floor. One of the high rises was our our office. You know, I mean, we wrote about a lot of things. You know, the sort of forced relocation of people, right. creating this urban refugee crisis that we continue to suffer from, <laughs> the um, physical conditions that people were living under, but increasingly, I focused on patterns of police. Abuse that within the that eight square blocks primarily, w- and then expanding out with it. Well, yeah, primarily within that eight square blocks. And the other feature that made those eight square blocks so uh, compelling is, as of I believe two thousand, the administrative headquarters of the Chicago Police Department at Thirty Fifth and Michigan was a block away. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. From, so mm-hmm. just that. You know, that intimate landscape with these incredible social distances in it. Yeah. And, you know, and so I I wrote a lot in those years about individual instances of of police abuse. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the sort of daily crap of, of taking drugs and money off the young men in the drug trade, not making arrests. But also spent a lot of time investigating a homicide by the police and a rape by two police officers, neither of which I could... I know both occurred, mm. I have no doubt, but in terms of publishing that kind of thing, could never get to the, mm. the place where I could close it. And in that period, again, probably 2000, 2001, began to form a partnership that continues to this day with civil rights lawyers at the University of Chicago Law School, and the clinic there. And we began to bring civil suits against the police department in the city <laughs> arising out of my reporting, really the sort of pivot point there 
was having spent a lot of time doing what I think of as human rights reporting, where your focus is on the injury to particular individuals, nothing right. abstract about it. Right. You know, so per- this is what happened to yeah. this person. Particular, yeah. and you co- and that's really your focus. It's not like you have some thesis or some argument, and you're you're coming in search of a case study or an illustration. Yeah, yeah. It's really about the injury to the person, and the. Um, the question formed, because now I've been doing this for several years, <laughs> <laughs> and I've seen a lot, and I, you know, I'm a reasonably competent investigator and reporter, so I, I know that this stuff is going on. It's a pattern. The question that formed was, how would the world have to be organized? You know, what institutional conditions would have to exist for what we're seeing from day to day to be the case? And that's when we began to ask in some of these cases in the course of civil discovery for a list of police officers with the most complaints against right. them, et cetera, et cetera, the underlying investigative files. And that I won't go through the, all the legal twists and turns, but in uh, 2014, after close to a decade of litigation, that culminated in a decision um, in which I was the plaintiff, Calvin versus Chicago. I like that name. Yeah, that's pretty good. <laughs> I like that. Did I you like get that. that on the on the back of your jersey? I don't, you know, <laughs> I, I don't like titles. You know, I'm the executive director. When, yeah. when somebody describes me as the founder of the Invisible Institute, I go, what? But the, as if I had the idea one day. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Calvin versus Chicago works for me. Um, on the little, like, yeah, nameplate on the desk, should be your, pretty good. It should be your Twitter name. <laughs> yeah, that, <laughs> that's good. Um and what that it was a decision of the Illinois Appellate Court, and it established that police misconduct files, you know, documents bearing on mm-hmm. allegations of police misconduct are public information in hmm. Illinois, which is huge. Yeah. And it doesn't, you know, California, New York, nothing comparable, most jurisdictions across the country. So we established this amazing level of transparency. Right. And that's really the point at which you're saying that was not the case, and then that changed, or Chicago always had no, no. It was the, it was that decision. I mean, okay. Chicago was like everywhere else. There's right. a huge wall of official secrecy around mm-hmm. that kind of information. Yeah, but we broke through, and that's the point at which the Invisible Institute we needed to figure out how to be sort of worthy of that moment, and so staffed up, began to do serious fundraising. And created something called the Citizens Police Data Project, CPDP. Yeah, and that was kind of my entry point into seeing your work was this, like, how do we take, now that we have access to this immense amount of data that nobody else in other cities has, how do we make sense of this? And how do we make this useful both for reporters, organizers, and then just also for people to have a sense of what's happening on a structural scale? What are some of the new tools or new ways of thinking about uh, structuring that data that you found to be more useful than you might have thought a couple years ago, and that that continues to to kind of unfold. So the first thing to say about about the data is CPDP is built out of primarily citizen complaints of police misconduct. Those complaints come predominantly from low income African American neighborhoods, South Side, West Side. So you have this sort of extraordinary phenomenon of people who have been marginalized, largely disenfranchised, still coming to an official body seeking redress mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. what they believe was abuse by, by the state. I mean, there is a vast number of people who feel like they've been abused by the police and don't complain. But, you know, it's still a So our, our database contains something like a quarter of a million individual allegations. Of, mm-hmm. The point that I want to make, though, is going back to where all this started at Stateway Gardens, 
is every data point is an individual human story, mm-hmm. right? So we try to always keep that tension in our thinking, the human context for the data. There's some very cool things you can do with the aggregate data and discerning patterns and networks and stuff. But there's a danger, and we've fought against it internally, there's always a danger of what I think of as a kind of data hubris. You know, you think (laughs) you've got your arms around the world because you've got some body of of information. Yeah. We try to try to avoid that, and how imperfect data can be. I, I man, I, I have so many places I want to go, but I actually want to go back to something you said, um, which is prevalent for a lot of my experiences on the ground, and just being, you know, a human being and a black person growing up in Chicago. You said there were all these things, you know, rape, theft, murder that you knew happened, uh, but there were reasons why you could not like go forth and tell that story in an official way, which I think is really important. And we could break down some of the machinations yep. of like journalism or beyond journalism, like mass communication. Cause I think that is a, a really prevalent dynamic of there's these generational harms that have been happening um, that are, are common, like folk knowledge. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but there seems to be, some barrier or some internalization that does not allow like official communication of these harms. And so break down the the why of, you know, somebody was raped, you know, somebody was murdered, you know, you know, the, the common trope is like police drop off or sell or distribute guns that then they, that then contributes to the violence that they are paid to respond to. Um, how can you know those things and what are the barriers in being able to c- communicate that out to the public? It's a great formulation. And I mean, you're, you're touching on a couple of things uh, that are both fundamental to human rights work and fundamental to investigative reporting. Mm-hmm. Before we broke through official secrecy, I think it's fair to say that the machinery of so-called accountability, you know, I used to describe it as a broken system. Mm-hmm. And then I realized... Man, yeah. this, this isn't broken. Yeah. This is functioning. Yeah. It's a right. high-functioning system. Especially on the third iteration of it. But for other, <laughs> for other purposes. Yeah. And so it's really a kind of regime of not knowing, mm-hmm. a way of not knowing things that the police department, the city, you know, various people in authority are capable of knowing. Like anti-knowledge. About fun- <laughs> right. No, but active, you know, yeah. and, and, but I, what, what's interesting is it's a really sort of active process. We talk uh-huh. about denial, official yeah. denial, as if it were a matter of throwing a switch. Mm-hmm. You actually have to work at it. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's, it's way harder <laughs> not to know what's going on. You have on to work things. at <laughs> it. You have to work. I mean, I think it's one of the telling things about the Laquan McDonald, you know, all we've learned about that case, but it could be any number of cases. They have to work really, really hard not mm-hmm. to connect the dots, yeah. not to know things. And I would juxtapose with that pattern mm-hmm. of official secrecy, official indifference, official denial, the fundamental human rights principle, which I take to be a, a moral imperative, that um, we just have an absolute obligation to know what we have the means to know <laughs> about fundamental human rights abuses. Mm-hmm. And so how you get there is the question that you're asking. You know, how you get there. I would say one other thing in response to your your really well-framed question, which is that— First of all, I just want to shout out you you shouting out my question. <laughs> I like your question. Is, uh, I appreciate that. We're going to go it down. Wasn't, take those. It was a good question. It was a good question. <laughs> but the thing about you, you know, that you also reference what everybody knows in the community. Right. The work that somebody like I have done over my career and the Invisible Institute now does, yes, there are things we can learn from the data, but there are things that we can only learn 
on the ground mm -hmm. from people's lived experience, um, you know, in the places where people are most subject to these patterns of abuse. Right. There's a term that's always really moved me in sort of international human rights practice, you know, when they talk about truth and reconciliation. And it's this notion, and I think it's at the center of what we do or aspire to do at the Invisible Institute, that, you know, if you live in a society where there's been a practice of torture, everybody knows, mm -hmm. right? The people who have been tortured know, their families know, the people who are intimidated into silence or um, compliance with the state yeah. know because they're afraid the torturers know. But that knowledge is isolating. Mm -hmm. and, hmm. and for those, you know, who've suffered, it's harrowing. You know, it's incredibly burdensome. And so if you're going to change a society that has been deformed that way, um, it's critical that there be public acknowledgement mm -hmm. to go from private knowledge to public right. acknowledgement right. of the just the reality and the extent of the harms. Right. I think that's what we're struggling for in this in this city right now. You know, yeah. a lot of stuff has come out, but there's still this matter of of public acknowledgement and you know the the theory, the orientation, the faith of human rights work is that if you can describe it, if you can look at it, if you can hold your gaze, you can fix it. Yeah. But if you have to lie about it, if some part of your relationship to reality is still caught up with that, all that energy that goes into denial, we're not going to get anywhere. Mm -hmm. And just culturally, and this is like a big macro statement, but the United States is really bad at acknowledgement. <laughs> it's really bad <laughs> like, at acknowledgement. There are a lot of places where From that is, you know, like <laughs> yeah. that is a practice of suppression of acknowledgement, even when it is things that everybody knows. And then I think one of the byproducts of that is that it gets harder and harder to know it, <laughs> you know, unless you're someone who is personally or, you know, directly carrying that harm. The, the the farther you get from that, then the easier it is for that acknowledgement never to happen. And then it just, the harms calcify. Well, and I think there's also something else that, um, <clears throat> you know, we were talking about official denial, official you know, mm -hmm. withholding of information from the public. I think there's something else that is deeply, deeply problematic. And particularly with the sort of hardcore bedrock issues with respect to race and racial justice in the society, which is that, again putting aside the, the people who, who know with their nerve endings, right. um, <laughs> the, um, we have this capacity to know and not know at the same time. We can be, mm. so, what do you mean by that? So, well, for me, the real problematic in our work is not to so much to bring people information that they don't have and thereby change their view of the world and move them to action. You know, we all live under a tsunami of information, <laughs> right? And so the question is, how does that information become knowledge that you just sort of can't be you if you don't hmm. take it in and act on it in some mm -hmm. way? Mm -hmm. You know, how does it break through into people's moral imaginations? So, you know, I live on the South Side and in the Kenwood neighborhood, very well-heeled, you know, deeply integrated, but very middle-class, you know, neighborhood. Um, our offices are in proximity of the University of Chicago on, on the South Side. And I often am struck, and it kind of defines how I see the challenge of our work. You know, I move often among people and dear friends, people I love, 
who are incredibly well informed by any measure. <laughs> Probably in the history of the human race, yeah. people haven't had yeah. access to more information. So you have people who, you know, have the New York Times and Chicago paper on their doorstep, NPR on all day long, check multiple right. news mm-hmm. sites, mm-hmm. have read the right books, you know, I've read Michelle Alexander and yeah, et cetera, no, right. et cetera, have written some of those books. It's possible to be that person in our society, in our political media culture, and be profoundly ignorant of the realities of people's lives, your neighbors and fellow citizens, walking distance from where you put your head on the pillow each right. night. It lives that in the to, abstract. That to me is amazing. I mean, how we do that. So early in my career, I, you know, coming out of a kind of classic First Amendment orientation towards towards journalism, you know, the you know the job is to get accurate information to your fellow citizens, and on the assumption that they'll be more likely to make wise or prudent choices based on that information. Yeah, I, you know, at this point in my career, pretty deep into it, I don't believe that for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, so what think do you what, think it is? So I think, but I think what we need to recognize, you know, when we, t- when we tend to talk about denial, we talk about it as if it were aberrant behavior, hmm. as if it were a departure from the norm. Mm. The bad apples argument. I think it's yeah. the norm. I think yeah. it's the norm. I think it's we, an evolved instinct. I, I think there's a human genius yeah. for denial, and it must be, <laughs> it definitely serves a purpose, mm-hmm. right? right? I mean, if the world were just rushing at you and all of its overwhelmingness, you know, your head would explode. Well, it's like our eyes take in way more information than we process, right? Like we filter the things that are needed and useful and discard the rest of the information. And also to be structural, like, you know, so much of your work is around criminal justice. And maybe it's not like, you know, uh, species driven, but it's more, you know, political, that instinct. Because if we live in a world that is justice is mediated through punishment yeah right it is then in your survival instinct to not be punished no matter what harm you commit right like if the idea is i'm trying to be not guilty yeah right? I think that's, like that, that, that my freedom sense. is dependent on my not guiltiness no matter what i do then you're it, not going to be like you look i'm guilty all right <laughs> yeah, and that's in the individual yeah. and then collectively i think we, we have like yeah. you know but i think that there, that's a really interesting formulation and i think that the uh i think you know we could be wired as an evolutionary matter to manage information, screen mm-hmm. things out, mm-hmm. focus on what we need to focus right. on to survive, all of that. And then it metastasizes into something else right. in uh, you know, a political context and enables us to tolerate intolerable things, yeah. really. And I think that's the you know, that's the the challenge and the and the crux of it. Yeah. I, I, I want your per- perspective on something. And as this conversation goes, I, I think it would be appropriate for me to place myself more, but I'll do that in a second. I'm really intrigued by how all of this work really started in the context of housing. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, a, as an organizer and a participant in movement, one of the steps, uh, the spaces I'm connected to is working on right now is how to be more explicit and making that connection of incarceration and policing and the violence we experience from those institutions, how that is connected and interfaces with that, the, you know, the condition of shelter yeah. people in our society, uh, the epidemic of homelessness, housing, houselessness, and housing insecurity. Uh, but it's v- very still abstract, right? Like we know if people have homes, violence will will 
drop, right? Yeah, yeah. But but on a structural level, the fact that this work of kind of investigating police abuse started in the 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 context of public housing and, and disinvestment from mm-hmm. from that model, it's a really big question. But where do you see those connections now? Are there any like overlapping data points that help yeah, um, okay. um, play out how these two phenomenons are connected, especially coming out of two thousand eight? which was right at the tail end of the, the you know, so we lost all the public housing and then people and who owned all their wealth yeah, <laughs> got, got, got their houses stolen. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, wh- wh- where does that all mix? So, in you know, there's one, this is again at a fairly um, high level, but I've, I've thought a lot about this in uh, various contexts. And, you know, if you think about, I mean, well, first point, and it was one of the absurdities, one of the many absurdities of the so-called plan for transformation, you know, the demolition of public mm-hmm. housing is... They're uh, good with, with, with taglines. The naming, though. man. They're good. No, the name. They make it sound great. <laughs> so, you know, I used to joke, I used to joke back in the day. I mean, I've been a critic from when it was on the drawing board, a public critic of the whole thing. And I used to joke about, wow, this really is an Orwellian name, the plan for yeah. transformation, from people who couldn't give you, you know, maintenance and security. They're right. going to give you transformation. <laughs> yeah. And but then I realized as the thing unfolded that the really Orwellian word was plan. <laughs> <laughs> well, so we, were, we were just joking yesterday about building a new Chicago and being like, we already have one. <laughs> like, That's called what? destroy it old Chicago. Yeah, destroy it old Chicago. Yeah. yeah. So the plan. I mean, I've used I've used this image in a, a piece of writing about it. But the plan. You know, if you imagine those developments as being like. Um, ships full of boat people offshore mm-hmm. the plan was just to sink the boats i mm-hmm. mean you know, to the extent that there was a plan at all mm-hmm. was to disappear that population mm-hmm. but you know but as that was going on i mean one of the really absurd things is that the prevailing wisdom in sort of social service delivery circles was that the thing you need to do first is stabilize somebody's housing mm-hmm. then you can engage you but know, that baseline all, but yeah. that you have to because if somebody you know, is, is precariously housed, or you know, then everything else is subordinated to that. But to your to the heart of your question, you know, I've thought a lot in the, this amazing historical moment we're in about what it would mean to reimagine what we mean by public safety. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and a lot of folks mm-hmm. are pushing that mm-hmm. discourse, right? And if it wasn't just law enforcement, if we thought of it in different terms, and when I when I go down that path. I am struck by the thought that isn't safety fundamentally a matter of being at home? Mm -hmm. Being at home in your skin, Mm -hmm. being at home in your physical place, you know, being at home on your street, your community, your city. So that sense of at homeness and the sense of safety, Mm -hmm. whether we're talking about, you know, street violence or or harassing state violence. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, it feels like there's something worth deeply exploring yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Yeah, and just like the the way we extrapolate, like even just like shelter. <laughs> yeah. You know, like I'm protected on this in this neighborhood. I'm protected, and it sometimes it can be f- more physical, and sometimes it can be more existential. Even yeah. of like I know these streets well. I can navigate my way around it. But I want to go back to um, what you were saying about the the so-called plan. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, part of what the work of this show is is about creating an archive of like how we got to this point, and then for people twenty years later, fifty years later, how they got to that point. Yeah, and I think um, you know, as part of that 
citywide erasure of the housing is also the erasure of like what was happening in those buildings, good and bad, and then what happened in the aftermath. And we're still, you know, it, it's so much more um, personal and communal memory than it is institutional history at this point. So I'm curious, what do you think are the things that we should be talking about, about the building habitation and destruction of all those units and, and all those communities that you see not being discussed over oh, and over and yeah. over again. So I think it's I think it's like this huge undigested debacle. Yeah, you know that we went through as a city. Most people who weren't um, you know directly involved or didn't live in those settings to this day I don't think appreciate the scale of what happened. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, if you really look at a map of the city and um, th this was huge. This was. Um, only bears comparison to the rebuilding after the Chicago fire. <laughs> mm. In That's terms an interesting, of in terms yeah. of a restructuring of the city, yeah. yeah, and it was done on land in the central city that had you know long been occupied before public housing, you know, by by poor people, right? And so I think you know the first thing we've got to grapple with in the way this unfolded is. This was a failure in every possible way in terms of its ostensible purposes, you know, which on all the rhetoric was about improving people's lives, their social mobility, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And it, it didn't do that. It, it didn't do that. And if people, you know, and there were individuals who benefited tremendously from right. the plan, but they would have benefited if there'd been a tornado or if there were people after Katrina, right. you know, who found themselves. So it's mm -hmm. human character, luck, timing, those Access things. Access to resources. Access to resources. And, yeah. and sometimes, you know, when, when there are these big disruptions, actually it propels people out of their orbit into a new kind of creative space. Hmm. But a lot of people sink. Right. So to hold up somebody who moved to better housing and their kids doing better in school, as CHA does and the city mm -hmm. does, as an example, the success of the plan is complete bullshit. Right, and you it's know, an individualization yeah. of, of... These are people who deserve credit for, you know, um, the way they've navigated their lives, but the policy sure as hell doesn't. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think if you're looking for a baseline comparison, just imagine some natural disaster hitting these communities. Right. Some people transcend, some people sink, some people are impervious <laughs> to what happens. I yeah. mean, in, in any community. But to, to claim any great policy achievement there is is a preposterous. Mm. What I do think they can claim is an extraordinary disappearing act. Hmm. You know, and the thing that uh, we all need to contend with, I, I think, in in the city is Disappearing people and communities and places and situated histories actually works hmm. to an extraordinary degree. It to works. what end? Well, you know, there was a time when you couldn't go anywhere in this city on the sort of expressways that functioned as moats around those developments right. without seeing the high rises. Mm -hmm. They were, you know, nobody went there except to buy drugs, but everybody saw them all the time. And even though it was a kind of cartoonish vision of every social ill being associated mm -hmm. with those right. buildings, it still abraded people's sensibilities. It was right. present. So if you know if you that, lived in Ravenswood but were driving from Michigan, <laughs> you 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 had to see you chose you had no choice but you had to, no choice but to see them. So you, and and so in the restructuring of the city, 
I think by the radical disappearance of that world, we also restructured how issues are talked about and constructed, how who who's visible and who's not right. in, in our city. It was a remapping, not just of the city, but of people's moral imaginations. Mm-hmm. And we still haven't contended with that or even even acknowledged it. And you know, we talk a lot in the city, and appropriately so, about hypersegregation. Yeah. There's something beyond hypersegregation, which is the radical disappearance of people. Mm-hmm. It's invisibility. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm rendering folks invisible and know, i, I want to not problematize it but i want to yeah. i'm thinking about that term right because people are never invisible to themselves right so it's invisible when you say rendering them invisible invisible to who you know invisible to many of their fellow citizens invisible mm-hmm. to those engaged in uh policy formation um invisible to the press who are mostly missing in action on this stuff hmm. yeah it's an it's an interesting term, right? Because I know it, it's so central to the. And is that? Yeah, I, I imagine we're we're a fan of an entendre. Is that <laughs> how it gets used in the formation of the of Invisible Institute, or or why why that word? So, in, well, the, the there's a joke about the the name Invisible Institute. So back in the day, oh, we're getting to our Bell Biv Devoe, uh-huh. right? which is we have a. Also, think, I'll explain it. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> so late '80s boy band. <laughs> we got new edition, right? <laughs> Not everybody within the group performed at the highest level. So there was this kind of defunct trio that had to branch off because they didn't really have anything going solo. I'm I'm really stretching this out. Yeah. Called Belle Biv DeVoe. You familiar uh, with Belle Biv DeVoe? Yeah. We're telling a history that needs to be told. <laughs> and, and the reason why you remember Belle Biv DeVoe is because of one moment, one name, one song, and that song is Poison. And so I've always imagined... For Bell, for Biv, and DeVoe. <laughs> what was that? <laughs> what was that moment like in the studio? The bass line was laid down, they hit the high note, the the mixing, mastering, but like, oh, we have a hit on our hand. For the next 25 years, we could tour off this one song. <laughs> and Jamie Cliven, 25 years later, you know, yeah. against the city is gonna uh is gonna remember us. And it was because of that moment. So whenever somebody has a hit name, yeah, I call that the Bell Biv DeVoe moment. I love it. I love I it. I'm, I'm going to take that home with you. <laughs> but the 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 story about the name is that when we started publishing the View from the Ground, you know, it was this sort of early. It was, it was a great moment in terms of that kind of web based journalism because mm. it was before people had, you know, dense spam catchers and all mm-hmm. of that. Oh yeah, it was I could, getting there. <laughs> I could get I could get into the chief of police's mailbox and I mean, anybody. Yeah. So we had a, we had a very refined list of of folks that we sent the view to, as well as sort of putting posting it online. When we published the first story in the view from the ground, I as a sort of gesture of. Uh, <laughs> mild contempt towards academia and think tanks and stuff. I said it was, you remember, we're in a five-bedroom unit, squatters, drug dealers outside the door acting as our doorman, you know, working at Stateway Gardens. I said the view was being published under the auspices of the Invisible Institute. Purely a wisecrack. (laughs) There was no such thing. It was a completely wisecrack. And the name, people immediately just like the name. Mm-hmm. So it, like, oh, shit, now we got to build an institute. It, kinda, <laughs> it followed me around for years. It followed, so what, it's, you know, really 14 years later 
that we actually incorporate something called <laughs> the Invisible Institute. And it, it actually, I mean, the joke's on me now because it's becoming something akin to an institute. <laughs> <laughs> That is that's probably the vote. Sure. <laughs> so you're even in that moment, you're thumbing your nose at at academia and all that. Where I'm curious psychologically for you, how you um, find yourself, not just what drew you to this work, but like what kept you coming back to it, and why do you? What are the, what do you think are the skills that you have that fit so well with the work mm-hmm. that you've been doing? When you look at anybody's sort of history and personal history, things can look much more dramatic than Mm -hmm. they are. Like somebody jumped across some huge chasm to the other side. You know, you sort of move step by step kind of intuitively. Before I came back to Chicago in the mid-70s, I had traveled a a great deal around the world and was actually a, a really passionate mountaineer. You know, mm-hmm. climbed all over the West, had climbed in Europe, but spent time in the Himalayas. Wow. Had, um, uh, with a friend, had uh, taken a motorcycle from Paris to New Delhi, heaped with climbing gear. Damn. And what type of party? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. The climb up is, is uh, or down for that matter. I like, I'll keep it just a little flat. That's good. What was it for you that but, drew you to that? But it was, you know, it's just, I, I love that kind of activity due to this day. And so as I began to bring into focus a writing career, the the idea was how do I make the sort of appetite for adventure and travel um, more productive and have some way of earning from it? Hmm. So I was really in the early stages of classic foreign correspondent, war correspondent sort of trajectory. And my father, who was a professor at the University of Chicago, died died young at 60 and in the middle of a huge manuscript on the First Amendment. And so I came back to Chicago and spent you know, more than a decade at home finishing that mm-hmm. book, which is you know, a whole other story. But when I looked up, I by that point was married and had a, ch- had a child a couple of children you just look right up and, then... and I look up and I was oh also... <laughs> shit there they are <laughs> yeah oh, where'd that little kid come from where'd that guy come from and I was but I was in my native place right you know and the south side of Chicago is incredibly interesting right setting and I'm very much a you know a native and a child of the south side and so in a strange way that I Somebody else will have to write about if it ever gets written about because I'm not sure I, I know how to approach it. The the big adventure for me turned out to be coming home mm-hmm. and sort of exploring my home place. And so, you know, I often people it's 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 all too easy to impose a kind of noble or heroic um, prodigal son narrative on yeah. my on my work. But there's all what people miss is there's also just sheer sense of adventure mm-hmm. and how interesting it is mm-hmm. you know and i found that by expanding my definition of my neighborhood by expanding mm-hmm. by expanding my understanding of who my neighbors are um i just hugely enriched my my life and my practice as a writer yeah and i've always thought of the work in terms of neighborliness so, you know to this day um there's a. I was very influenced partly because of the immersion in my father's First Amendment work. 
very influenced by the Central European, um, you know, human rights, civil society activists, so Solidarity in Poland, Václav Pavel, oh, and yeah, others yeah. in in Czechoslovakia, and one of their central ideas was just and again with a sense of adventure, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Let's see what happens yeah. if, under conditions of totalitarianism, we behave like free people. <laughs> and they would do things like write a letter in the newspaper, hold an open meeting, start monitoring trials of dissonance. I mean, incredible acts of courage, yeah. right? In in reality, with things we would take for granted. But that principle of as if, mm-hmm. what if we just behave as if we're free? <laughs> and so my translation of that into my situation was, you know, let's see what happens if we behave like neighbors under conditions of urban apartheid. <laughs> <laughs> And I continue to f- sort of be motivated by that exploration. And, you know, across all sorts of distances of class, race, yeah. um, uh, uh, people actually sort of know how to be neighbors. Hmm. Yeah, what, know, is, have, what does being a neighbor look like to you? Well, to me, it, it's really material and practical. You know, your car's in the snow, you need to push. You know. So a lot of the, you know, I mentioned earlier that um, I created this organization, the Neighborhood Conservation Corps. My vehicle that sort of carried me deeper and deeper and ultimately into, deeper and deeper in the South Side and ultimately into public housing was physical work, <laughs> you know? Mm. I mean, for years and years, I did much of my best thinking with a sledgehammer and, and uh, you know, or a shovel. So sort of creating creating those occasions, some of them volunteer, you know, people mm-hmm. want to turn a vacant lot into a garden. But then once I got really deeply involved in public housing, it was creating jobs, doing site preparation for contractors. Mm-hmm. And, and that, I mean, I think it's a really deep thing for people, that sort of notion of um, community barn raising, yeah. things we, you know, do together and... Um, so for me, that that's a big part of the the sort of neighborliness, you know. And mm-hmm. I, I used to bang around the South Side with a pickup truck full of tools, <laughs> um, and you know, it was kind of engaging with people in a neighborhood, sort of interested in doing some project. And it was as simple as you know, see that big rock over there that's in the middle of everything, and you know, I I got some guys and some tools. You bring mm-hmm. some folks, and. You know, if you can build that kind of dynamic, right, then the conversation you have later on in the day, leaning on shovels, is so different than people coming together in a church basement right. to talk about mm-hmm. issues, or a reporter and, interviewing, or a reporter interviewing. So yeah, and so the other thing that happened with my reporting because I had been involved in that kind of work for a number of years before I started to really report on conditions is when I did, and I benefit from it to this day, I had extraordinary array of sources. Hmm. But they weren't sources. Right, they were people. They were my friends, they were colleagues, they were neighbors. Um, they were people who I didn't know but knew me and came to me with with information and stories. So that you know, orientation kind of continues and, and really pervades with my colleagues as well, how we operate. It makes yeah. me think about when we were at Freedom Square and the like, condition for doing 
any interviewing yeah. was you had to put in some hours of like maintenance work. Yeah, we wouldn't we wouldn't answer a question unless you did. We had tasks lined up for report. Only yeah. person that had an issue with it was Fox News, not not like Fox Fox News, like the local the local Fox, the local Fox. Fox. Yeah. He said he wasn't allowed to do that, and then he like moved a chair or something before. Yeah, <laughs> it was real interesting. He pulled that. Um, I, I have a, a an addendum. And I, I forgot how you framed it, but the qu- the last like big question Daniel asked, I want to kind of understand how you see yourself because I think as you stand now, I think my personal perspective, but I think kind of your position in the city uh, is as someone who operates or has a position of someone who could a- have access to like traditional power, uh, but is is choosing to operate more as a disruptor. Right. So whether it's proximity to UFC, which, you know, obviously yeah. has a very complicated institutional history to to put it mildly <laughs> uh, or just in general, you know, I think just the, your ability to move through the world. Um, it is not an existential opposition as, you know, someone who feels like, oh, this system is killing me. This system took yeah. my child yeah. from me. Right. Yeah. Um, and so is, is, is that line up with kind of the trajectory of how you see yourself? And was there a point where you went from, I, you know, I'm kind of close to an insider, but I want to, I want to continuously disrupt and, and yeah. Thumb so my the nose. thing, I mean, it's, uh, I'm um, in this weird situation right now where, having been, you know, early in my career, kind of an insurgent presence. Mm-hmm. Studs Terkel, who was a you know a dear friend throughout my life, um, and his big flex. Big yeah, flex. That's, that <laughs> is the ultimate ergo name drop right there. <laughs> no, just he was, yeah, he was part of the family. But he um, he would describe me as a guerrilla journalist. Mm. And that still is how I think mm-hmm. about, um, I think of our practice as journalism at the Invisible Institute as intervention. Mm. You know, I'm not publishing to hold eyeballs or to maintain a reputation or any. You know, we're when when we land a story the the um, effort is to affect policy and practice to you know change the realities on the ground hmm. and that's the only metric that that matters I think the the sort of strange thing that sometimes worries me I, I, I don't mean this as a sort of false modesty is in recent years it's like moving from the margins to the center right and having the work acknowledged mm-hmm. in the journalism mm-hmm. awards mm-hmm. and people say nice things about you. Um, so part of the challenge is to just really be clear about your center of gravity. And that actually goes back to, to your question about why I kept going back to Stateway Gardens, you know, Mm -hmm. 14, 15 years. And, uh, part of the reason was that I found ways of being useful, but another really critical part of it for me, I realized kind of in retrospect was it was the only way I could think clearly. <laughs> what do you mean? Well, because, you know, y- y- there's there's a conventional discourse in media and policy circles about the range of issues that I care about. And you can have a really successful career in that sphere, yeah. the sort of frictionless sphere of <laughs> reporting and, and public discourse without ever being accountable to reality on the ground there's that disconnect i've spent my career attacking that disconnect Mm -hmm. you know that's where the work is 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 most useful so um you know i continue to see that as the the core function pushing for the kind of public acknowledgement 
that mm-hmm. that we've been talking we were talking about earlier. Yeah. At the same time, you know, I don't hesitate to use my access where right. I can use it. And I think one of the challenges, and I've had this conversation with some of my um, Black Lives Matter activist friends, and you know, one of the challenges, if you're generating power in civil society towards change, then you also have to recognize that there are moments where you interface with the state, right? You know, with powerful interests. How you handle that is is really critical. And I know with the revolutions, like in Central Europe in 1989. There were some folks who were so locked into a position of in a posture of resistance mm-hmm. and being direct dis- opposition distance and that you know that's clear and sort of whatever the risks are it's also morally satisfying mm-hmm. and so we're just unable to engage in practical politics when that became available to mm-hmm. change so even in all those years as i said i was a critic from day one publicly repeatedly in print and every public forum available to me of the plan for transformation i also worked for many years i suppose in one sense to try to make it work mm-hmm. i wouldn't sacrifice a family's interests or an individual's right. interest to be right to make a point right so how you manage those things i don't find it a great tension um, I think other people have sometimes been confounded by hmm. it. It feels to me like a single practice. Hmm. What but, you, can you just pull that apart? Because, yeah, how? why is it not attention for you? Well, because I don't think that to engage in problem solving, you know, with um, a police commander or somebody in the mayor's office or somebody at the public housing authority necessarily or inevitably puts me in a situation where I won't be honest in my reporting hmm. where I'm so invested in that relationship that I will trim or I will self-censor. That would be the concern. Mm-hmm. Um, and I may be, you know, deluded in the last, hmm. to, the last to get the news. That's always possible, but, <laughs> but I don't think so. So I think it's possible to be, you know, an autonomous civic presence. That's certainly what I personally aspire to be and, and, and collectively with the invisible Institute and, um, you know, be uncompromising in your reporting on conditions, mm-hmm. but also be prepared to be available, be engaged, yeah. be in conversation. And neighborly. Be neighborly. Be neighborly with – and, you know, it's, it's a mistake to assume that the state is monolithic. You know, we have all sorts of allies within the bureaucracies. Hmm. I mean, I've – you know, in recent years, made my reputation such as it is, really on the basis of whistleblowers reaching out to me mm-hmm. with stories. Mm-hmm. People in law enforcement, mm-hmm. you know, as major sources, we wouldn't know the name Laquan McDonald were it not for a whistleblower in law enforcement. Mm-hmm. We wouldn't know, you know, the this so-called Watts scandal that I reported right. on the Code of Silence stuff. Again, two whistleblowing cops were were absolutely central sources on that, mm-hmm. and. Did they did they ask to be downplayed in that or or why is why is that not a, a more central part of the narrative? Or they're pretty central in and the stuff I did in the intercept. They're okay. they're pretty central. Um, and, and then on the macro level of that storytelling, why do you think that gets decentralized, or do you think that gets decentralized? Because like I, we have been so closely connected to both of the responses to those, and I 
didn't know that information necessarily. And maybe that's just I didn't read your article. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So if you read the, I mean, if you read the Code of Silence in the Intercept, it's um, you know it's long novella length series of articles. Um, you know the the print. It's a very propulsive sort of Serpico type mm-hmm. narrative. Uh, you know the principal sources are two hmm. whistleblower officers, active now, or retired. Uh, one active, one pushed out of the department. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other thing to say about that is, and there's a movie being made of it, and you know that's an easier. It's always st- a movie being um, made about th- the whistleblower. Th- that's cap. when the cops get sent. But that's a, that's <laughs> an easier story though for people to relate to. Right. Mm-hmm. And the challenge for me now, with respect to the Watts stuff, and you know, just for listeners who may not be aware, this is a goes back to public housing. I heard about this on the street at Stateway. There was a group of gang tactical officers at the I.W. Wells homes. The alpha dog was Sergeant Ronald Watts. And for a decade plus, they were an integral part of the drug trade. So there was something called the Watts tax. Mm-hmm. You, were, you were taxed to deal drugs. It Not was like to be a, confused with documentary Watts Stacks, <laughs> which is a documentary about a music concert in the 70s. <laughs> Very similar letters just put together. That's interesting. It's good to yeah, know. Yeah. But the um, uh, so you know in this poor neighborhood, and it's you know pre-apocalyptic moment where they're about to tear it all down. They're being preyed upon by the most ruthless, corrupt officers in the city. Yeah. By conventional journalistic standards, um, those articles had really dramatic impact. I mean, senior people have been fired. There have been investigations launched. The article received all sorts of awards. There's a movie being made. Most significantly, there now are more than 60 people who have been exonerated, having been falsely (laughs) arrested Mm -hmm. by these guys. Mm -hmm. Um, And there are dozens and dozens more with petitions pending. With all of that, I feel like I haven't broken the story. And this actually goes back to the realities of public housing, Mm. you know, in that last chapter. I feel like I haven't broken the story, you know. It's too easy to get excited about a police procedural narrative or to, um, you know, to focus on my finger but not what it's pointing at. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. And say, wow, that was a really great article as opposed to what it's pointing at. Good pointing. What is pointing? Yeah, good point. (laughs) I get a lot of that. But what, you know, what, what it's pointing at, what it's pointing at, and what we really have to comprehend is. It, what it's pointing at is the role of abusive police practices that everybody in the neighborhood's done. You know, everybody's aware of you know, who's going to take the package today. You know, I'm going to put drugs on it. Yeah. Um, the way those practices in the context of the war on drugs just drive mass incarceration. Not the only thing, but it's a huge, huge thing. Hmm. And so now the press is starting to describe, whenever there are more exonerations, they describe the Watts team at the Watt scandal as perhaps the biggest scandal in CPD history. Mm. That suggests, you know, that it's somehow uniquely terrible and uniquely bad. Right. It, it's far from unique. Right. You had teams comparable to this in every one of the developments. Mm. And you can just, you can almost make a logical argument without even knowing that, I mean, I had direct knowledge of it at Stateway and Robert Taylor, but, you know, you have 
uh, abandoned communities. Everybody knows they're going to be torn down in the foreseeable future. The population has essentially been criminalized and rendered not credible by the right. way everybody's, you know, a drug dealer's great grandmother, drug dealer's toddler. Mm-hmm. You know, right. so nobody nobody's got credibility vis-a-vis the cops. Um, it's a vice zone. It's been allowed to be a vice zone for years. Lots of drugs and money laying around. You're going to tell me that police officers who are bent that way mm-hmm. are not going to take that opportunity right and so you know that's the story of not just public housing in chicago but of similarly situated neighborhoods across the city and across the country right that's among the things we have to be able to take in and hold in focus if we're gonna you know if we're gonna make the most of this moment so that that's the story that i still feel yeah. hasn't come across. That's that knowing and not knowing thing. Yeah, and about. the scale of it, you know, the yeah. scale of it. Yeah, I appreciate the curiosity because anytime I hear a story, yeah, I'm always disturbed by like the comfort with isolating it because I don't yeah. remember, I think this was maybe, maybe two, three years ago. Um, it was, it was a police officer. I think they were different. I think it might've been like a sheriff and a CPD officer or something. I'm, I'm sure you'll know more about it than I did. Um, but they were both undercover and like one tried to rob the other like (laughs) (laughs) like the story just ended there of like these two cops that are dealing drugs and like one arrested the other for trying to rob them (laughs) and like that's just it like what about the world what were they doing before we get to that point um i want to take a a step back and something that that i've I've been really excited to talk to you about You, you mentioned proximity to movement work right and our show definitely has a, a, a movement-centered lens and focus, and that is part of what we are documenting. Um, and so, you know, my work personally, that, that not like me, but the work that I've been a part of that I think has been most significant or gets the most attention uh, is definitely the response after the release of the Laquan video um, and then also our, our Freedom Square occupation. And, and both of, you know, those, you know, actions and, though, you know, that movement work uh, was in direct response to articles being published, right? Or to to, to journalistic work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so often, you know, we've been on a panel together. Uh, it was before I was, started twisting my hair. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, so much of, I think, our work gets contextualized and we, we speak about it in relationship to this information sharing. Uh, and I've always been curious, like from the other side, um, your perspective of the the activism, the organizing the movement activity, the liberation work that is partnered and, and oftentimes comes in response or a reaction uh, to the work that you and you know your peers do. Yes, uh, I I think of it very much the way you sketched out. I mean, I we're not really organizers. Mm-hmm. I mean, we are in a sense, mm-hmm. but we're. I was at Stateway, yeah. you know, back in the day, but I I see us as being um, a journalistic slash human rights organization. Mm -hmm. And our challenge is to investigate things that nobody else is investigating. And that's the only work I'm interested in is the work that won't get done if we don't do it. Mm -hmm. Mainstream press has left a lot on the table for us, right? (laughs) In terms of- Yeah, you're going to stay busy for a while. (laughs) In terms of stuff that, I mean, fundamental, fundamental, you know, stories and human situations that aren't reported or adequately reported- but, you know, I think of that work as existing in a public sphere, a realm of public discourse. And over these years, to a degree that I never expected to see in my lifetime, I regard the, the movement of, of mostly young activists as um, the reason that sphere exists. 
Hmm. You know, the, the the articles nourish what activism has created. Mm-hmm. That's the, the way the I think. The container is built. But, the, yeah. that, but, and, but keeping that space open, I mean, I think a lot of people, probably myself, if I thought about it in these terms, would have predicted that things would have kind of collapsed back. <laughs> You know, in, in, in a way, the way I've described what happened after the Laquan McDonald revelations is that um, it wasn't just they lost control of the official narrative in the Laquan McDonald case. A larger official narrative about the state of the city, the relationship of citizens to the police and to civil authority collapsed. Mm-hmm. And that created a lot of space. Mm-hmm. And um, young activists moved into that space. And have continued, you know, by and large to occupy it, to hold that ground, mm-hmm. hold that space. And nothing that I do as a, um, as a writer or others, you know, as investigators and in doing human rights documentation will matter if that space isn't there. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, you know, as I think going forward about this moment, this opportunity we have, um, you know, it's – we're going to have, uh, certainly relative to the current one, a, a rel- whoever wins the election, a relatively progressive mayor. The consent decree is is um, gathering uh, traction. The police monitor team has been designated. I think there's a real danger at this moment, mm-hmm. in a curious way, hmm. of people feeling you know, like they celebrated after Anita Alvarez was voted out of office. Right. We've achieved something. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have achieved something. But, you know, the danger would be, okay, now um, the experts and yeah. the bureaucrats take over and mm-hmm. implement police reform. Mm-hmm. And that space gets filled by someone and, and then that, And then status quo really, you know, reasserts itself mm-hmm. and it becomes a kind of technocratic process. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. the reality is... There have been some significant advances in transparency and accountability over these years, but nothing has happened except by virtue of civil society energies. Nothing has happened without citizen pressure. There has been no leadership from our institutions. Mm. They've either been missing in action or complicit. Mm -hmm. And if anything is required, it's really ramping up movement activity, Mm -hmm. maintaining it going forward. If that happens... Then, you know, this could be an extraordinary time. Yeah. yeah. Let, let, let's stay. I'm going to pull the pin that I put in at the very beginning. Yeah. What are some tangible examples of what you're most worried about happening if that happens? That technocratic doomsday scenario. Well, it's not even. It's not a doomsday scenario. It's more a wasted opportunity mm-hmm. in the sense that tweaking these institutions, better training, different procedures, better more money. You know, more money. You know, those things will make some difference at the margins. But what we have an opportunity to do is to confront the beast itself. Right. I mean, that's my point about the Watt stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, we have an apartheid justice system. It's mm-hmm. not a matter of positive law like it was in South Africa where it's, it's written down. But that's the way it functions. Right. And anybody who spends, you know, time at 26 in California, you know, can see it, <laughs> can see it enacted and performed every day. So the the possibility of pushing beyond police reform as it's commonly mm-hmm. understood mm-hmm. to, I don't think these are the words we necessarily want to use, but to truth and reconciliation mm-hmm. in the broader sense. Mm-hmm. So we are talking about that fundamental 
public acknowledgement. And we're ultimately talking, I don't think there's another word, about reparations. Yeah. Uh, How do you fix this? Mm -hmm. How do you, you know, the acknowledgement has to be followed yeah, by yeah. that. So, you know, the danger is not that something, I mean, the, you know, the status quo is all, that's a powerful gravitational field trying to yeah. reestablish its footing. And I think the sustained quality of the activism has made that hard, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. Man, there's so many, yeah. There's so many big questions I want to ask, but I think I think this where, where I want to go, I think, is in the thread that we're in. But I want to give a little context to us first. Mm -hmm. uh, so in addition to this show, we we do a lot of work in spaces, mostly educational, like youth-centered spaces around journalism, right? Uh, and we have arrogantly <laughs> made the claim that, you know, there is a a fallacy of objectivity that perpetuates power imbalances and inequity, right? That mm -hmm. every piece of information is is shaped subjectively right and in the in the masking that subjective position it often you know re perpetuates power um and so we try to you know when we're talking to young people about storytelling about media um as we push towards journalism space as being like you know non-journalists explicitly non <laughs> we 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 we're trying to promote the subjectivity and story frame and, and being accountable to that right uh and so I want to give you a little bit more space to be subjective in your imagination because uh, you've talked about your proximity to movement. Um, you, you know, you use the big R reparation word. And so I think our movement in some mainstream narratives, and maybe we are complicit in that, can get reduced uh, to responses to police violence. Yeah. Uh, but from the people, we, you know, if anybody's listened to this show explicitly, anybody who's ever heard me talk anywhere, like <laughs> at, at my, speaking at my grandmother's kitchen or something, uh, you know, we, we are critiquing the structure itself and, you know, casting it as irredeemable based off its historical roots and how it functions now um, and, and use the legacy of abolition. Right. So abolition, reparation and reconstruction uh, would be more of, I think, the, the folks who respond and put boots to the ground to some of the stories that that, that you've broken. Um, and so wh where do you fit or sit when you hear those those visions, those yeah. ideologies, how does that wrestle with you? Because you more than most know the details of how vile, because you said earlier, you have a data set of 250,000 cases of abuse. Uh, we know that that is a minority of what's happened, Fraction. right? Because Fraction. most people who are abused by the police actively do not, you know, report it. That's genocidal, or that's, a, that's an epidemic, right? That's, that's a, a human right tragedy. Um, and so there are people proposing we need to abolish that system. 26th in California, 35th in, in state. These are, these are terrible institutions, and we need new ways to respond to harm and violence. How, how do you see that? Yeah, so I'm not an abolitionist. Right, okay. You won't be surprised. <laughs> and I embrace abolitionists, ah, if that makes sense. It does. It goes back to what I described in working in, in public housing. I would never forfeit or sacrifice or jeopardize an opportunity to save somebody from harm or in this context save you know mm -hmm. somebody from being killed mm -hmm. in order to to make a point or <laughs> advance a, a large abstract vision mm -hmm. so i think there are all sorts of of immediate practical things that can be done that have real consequence i mean you know the the essence of human rights work is to focus on past harms in order to avoid something that would otherwise happen in the future. You don't know yeah. who the victim is going to be, but you know it's going to happen. If we don't fix certain things, you know people are going to be harmed. A lot of that work is sort of granular. 
And um, so I think there's a danger in jumping past those intermediate steps mm-hmm. in the name of a, of a larger vision. Um, having said that, the, the sense in which I've come to, and I mean this you know, without irony, really embrace abolitionists, is I think that that stance, especially as it's matured and mm-hmm. become more about the allocation of, res- of existing right. resources, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. has created a space for us to imagine things being different. You know, and alloc- and I think that's that's really what I was trying to say before about the contribution of the movement to maintaining a public sphere. Now, it's a public sphere of argument, and discourse, and you know, problem solving, but it also needs to be a sphere where we can imagine yeah. alternatives, where we can reinvent what it means to be safe, well, yeah. reinvent what it means to be at home. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if, if you're asking me. Do I advocate for abolition in my own practice? No. Right. You know, I'm much more focused on um, the next set of concrete practical steps. But I see that, and I see it in the rearview mirror, you know, over these last 25 years of this kind of work, as well as as going forward. I see that process as kind of building a path brick by brick. Yeah. That if we, you know, are are worthy of this moment and can sustain the the energy and focus, bring us ultimately to the great central unfinished business in American life, mm-hmm. you know, which mm-hmm. is racial equity mm-hmm. yeah. across institutions. And, you know, that, to have that opportunity, so the question for me is how we construct and articulate that path yeah. and not jump over steps, you know, build it solid, create a foundation for the things that we so, so what are some of those steps that 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 you, if not imagine, propose or view as? Sure. So, I, I mean, I think there are a bunch of immediate things that um, my biggest area of passion is just continued, enlarged, and really proactive transparency. Right. We just want all the information, and, and then we should, can figure out it should be public. What to do, right? And then we can be, you know, I mean, I think that serves the sort of public acknowledgement. You know, we we started by talking about. I think it serves um, accountability. People yeah. know that this is public, you know. But I think the other thing about it is it enables us to be diagnostically smart. Mm-hmm. And I think you know it's possible to go way beyond where we where we are. And it's one of the things I'm going to be pressing both of the mayoral candidates on is to make bankable commitments in that regard. Yeah. You know, while they're vying for our votes, mm-hmm. yeah. the day one I will. I will do this. We should have access to the entire archive of, you know, and all the underlying files, of, you know, of police misconduct investigations. Mm-hmm. If we do, that becomes one of the great human rights archives anywhere. There's mm-hmm. so much to learn from that. Yeah. Um, and then it should be ongoing. It shouldn't be a question of what are we going to put in our annual report? What are we going to release this time? To just be hardwired into the system. That this is that, part of the public. That this is public and yeah. robustly public and proactive and you know, it shouldn't depend on our sort of rickety machinery of uh, Freedom of Information Act requests. Yeah, should just put it out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Put it, people like us in civil society will curate it and manage it, but um, just make it public. So that would, you know, that would be one thing. I think the another is, and this really does relate to reparations. Is I would look to the next administration to really rethink how the city law office works. 
Hmm. You know, I'm not sure where we are, you know, in terms of the costs of settlements and awards in police abuse cases, but we're probably north of three quarters of a billion, you know, in a period of maybe 12 years. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure the exact mm -hmm. figure. Some, <laughs> so, some, years so ago, some years ago, it was, you know, it was it, for the previous 10 years, it was put at about half a billion and only <laughs> keeps accumulating. Well, here's the thing. Those settlements and awards, and I don't for a moment begrudge the, the family of somebody so killed or somebody who's, you know, been tortured or suffered three quarters of a billion dollars over a uh, decade plus have built nothing, mm -hmm. have remedied nothing. Mm -hmm. It's actually part of how the system remains the same. Right. right. Uh, a friend of mine, uh, Flint Taylor, who's handled uh, many of the Burge torture cases, mm -hmm. refers to pin pinstripe patronage. It's <laughs> also hundreds of millions of dollars have gone to law firms. Yeah, it's an industry. <laughs> it's an industry, <laughs> you know. I mean, not just the civil rights firms, but he was talking more about those who defend the city and the and the police. Right. Mm. And the that's um, true. I've never thought of it on that side. That's oh, a no, lot of lawyers. That's yeah. a big number. Yeah, that's yeah, a yeah. big number. Wow. And so how you know, I would really press for for change on that. And again, I go back to the Watts case. So where where, where should that restitution come from? You know, I don't know quite how to think. I mean, the you know, the city has these insurance strategies mm -hmm. for for meeting those costs but, but question worth you know worth digging into at some point i think that the the key is to begin to shift from the way civil rights suits work now mm -hmm. to something that looks more like reparations and we've sort of seen that uh, with the reparations package around torture yeah. which is a kind of small beachhead but they actually use the word reparations right. and yeah. it reached a lot of people I, I predict that with the Watts case, it's going to get to a point where the state's attorney and the city are just going to have to, as opposed to processing petitions for exoneration one by one, they're going to have to get to a point of saying, here is the body of arrest these guys were involved in over their careers. Kind of like class action format. Here, yeah. you know, here are cases that align with the exonerations to date. We're going to do mass exoneration yeah. of everybody and come up with some kind of reparations package. Yeah. Um, what that looks like, I don't know. So, you know, I think we're also nationally at this kind of tipping point between mass incarceration and mass exoneration. Mm -hmm. And once you've got the information it's really possible to push for for the exonerations. Mm -hmm. It's not just the investigative reporting with the Calvin decision and all right. the complaints becoming of it. That's part of the argument that's been made in the Watts case. We have information now that wasn't available to us when this case was originally tried right. that warrants opening it up again. And so that that can become this kind of snowball. Right. And I'm trying to understand how in our um, limited ways, we can contribute to that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you think it's, but it's that for me, it's that practical. How do you engage these big themes with a really practical strategy? Yeah. yeah. I want to ask one more big theme, and yeah. then I want to be mindful of your time. Yeah. You. I got one more too. So okay. You, at least two. You're a, you're a patient, <laughs> thoughtful person. Thank you for t chopping it up with us like this. That's been a pleasure. The human rights model that you discussed of moving towards truth and reconciliation, or figuring out what are the little steps to prevent these things from happening again. Obviously, we live in a time on the macro scale where the steps taken by liberal democracies in Europe and to some degree here to that end 
it's not that they have failed, but it, it shows the limitations of the kinds of reconciliation that were done. When you see, you know, in Germany, Nazis marching, <laughs> that means you didn't get rid of Nazism right. through those means. So how are you seeing limitations to some of those human rights models that you're trying to make sense of that you maybe wouldn't have seen a year, five years ago? Good question. I think that if we learned anything from, you know, the political catastrophe at the national level, it should be that freedom is dialectical. It's always freedom from something. Hmm. And that means you're always fighting again, you know, and I think I've, wow. I've really resisted the notion that Trump is somehow, and, you know, Trumpistan, all the people around <laughs> him is, is somehow alien Right. To America. Yeah, yeah, this yeah. this is a strain in our national life that just coils through our, our history. Yeah. And we now see it in a particularly um, naked and uh, often farcical form, but we see it, the sort of brutal face of it. Right. You know, a great danger on the left has always been, and internationally, you know, after 1989 in Europe, people were talking about the end of history, you know, right. the, the utterly trans, transformation, or, or even, you know, the quote from uh, Dr. King that Obama likes so much about the arc of the moral universe. Yeah, ben Justice, yeah. I think that's a sentimental image. You know, it, I think there's an ongoing struggle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the forces of reaction are never going to go away. At least it'd be a good working assumption yeah. that they'll never go away. And... It's one of the things that's so instructive um, and, and to me grounding about, I always think of it as the Blacksonian, which is the way people refer to it in Washington. I can never remember the Museum, the museum yeah. of uh, African-American mm-hmm. history and culture. Part of what I took away when I first went there early in the Trump administration, in fact, several days after the president had been there and came out and ha- having discovered that that Frederick Douglass really does some good work. <laughs> I think that was, I think, was, I think yeah. that's a direct quote. And he's got some of his best, he's doing some great yeah, work. Yeah, I think he said he's doing great <laughs> he's work. doing great work. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, uh, we went, uh, my wife and I went several days after that. And <laughs> did you learn the same thing? You're like, man, that guy's killing it right now. Got a good future ahead of him. It was reinforced. <laughs> but the, um, but part of what I didn't expect and part of what I took away was just the perception that at every moment in our history where there's been an expansion of freedom, you know, I think any deep understanding of American history sees that it's African-American aspirations for freedom that have expanded freedom for the rest Mm -hmm. of us. Mm -hmm. And then that comes to include um, women and people in terms of sexual preference and, you know, different categories. But whenever there's been an expansion of freedom, there's been a fierce fierce reaction right and it always looks like these guys mm-hmm. <laughs> seriously in history mm-hmm. you know you don't have to you, you, yeah. you don't have to look far to find jefferson Beauregard, sessions the third right those guys are present throughout our history so for me the you know part of what i think we just have to understand is that freedom is an ongoing struggle yeah we come to more deeply understand the nature of that freedom you know, in that in that dialectic, but it's it's the, there's a huge danger in thinking it's over, and and often on the left or among progressives, I mean, it was the problem with Roe v. Wade. You know, right. you get a high watermark of um, for whatever complicated reasons of a judicial ruling, and there's a sense we won. 
Right. And you go home. Mm-hmm. And but the, force, the forces the of reaction don't go home. Right. And the Voting Rights Act, my God. You yeah. know, I mean, so so I think an understanding of that being really the nature of, of freedom, it's never not dialectical. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. never static. Yeah. Man. I feel bad that I have this last question because that was such a great ending point. But I think <laughs> it's important to me, and I want to get your opinion okay. on this last piece because uh, you know we just uh, have multiple endings. <laughs> a, 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 a bit, you know, a big thing that's, that, that's come out is around public transparency and the capacity that allows for accountability and some type of actual transformation instead of Orwellian, you know, disappearance. And you mentioned at one point about institutions being complicit. Uh, and so I want to just talk about your peers a little bit and what type of accountability there should be within media and journalism, specifically to to the work that I think um, has forefronted you in these last couple of years. Um, I'm pretty sure both the Tribune and the Sun-Times, you know, uh, reported the fraudulent statement of the police around the Kwame McDonald and then also, you know, Ronald Johnson. If we did not have these videos, that would just have been another, you know, notch in the historical record that gets forgotten and erased of these young, crazy black men that, that need to be put down in the streets. Um, and so for me, that that feels like propaganda, right? And, and it seems to be in counter to what the position of journalism is. So at, maybe not the specific, you know, reporters who may have been limited or had constraints, right. but at least institutionally, how should spaces, whether it's on a national pl- level, but I think, you know, you have more proximity to the local papers and publications and the channels. It feels like they got off scot-free and now can kind of yeah. like retell the story backwards. But it feels like that's a, a, a reaffirmation of that type of violence and that type of killing and, and, and that type of secret. So how do you view or see those who just blindly report, basically, he deserved to die in, yeah. in black so, and white? I mean, I, I my whole career has been devoted to another kind of practice. Mm-hmm. So I don't usually indulge in a lot of criticism of mm-hmm. other reporters. Well, here's your chance. No, no, but I, <laughs> I do on occasion. I do on occasion. And uh, I, I try rather to have the critique be carried by my own practice, mm-hmm. you know, by what yeah. another kind of reporting looks like. Mm-hmm. And and also the, the actual impact it has. Right. I think it's an interesting question right now. And definitely the press has gotten off scot-free. There's been very little self-interrogation about self-scrutiny and self-interrogation about how the press has contributed to um, just the way things are. And they can play the victim and, game on a lot of levels and they, because they're under attack be, from the state. Well, they're under attack and they're in the economic crisis. Um, but, you know, there, there's been very little of, of that scrutiny. And I was really struck. I covered both of the trials arising out of Laquan McDonald, so the uh, Van Dyke murder trial. And I'm not used to being part of the press corps, yeah. <laughs> but there I was for, like, right. for a month yeah. with, you know, dozens of reporters, which was kind of nice and fun. And I, I came to appreciate how hard people work in one sense. I mean, you know, sitting there live tweeting from the courtroom. I could no more do that than fly. <laughs> but I was, over time, I was really disturbed by the allocation of journalistic resources. Mm-hmm. There we are at 26 in California. Mm-hmm. You have this vast investment of journalistic resources doing basically redundant reporting. Right. Mm-hmm. They're all in the same room. They're all in the same room and everything's live streamed anyway. So it's redundant reporting. Right. And I just kept thinking about all the other stories that were unfolding in that building mm-hmm. with nobody in the courtroom. Mm. 
and nobody is ever going to be in those courtrooms yeah. given our the way media is organized now. Mm-hmm. So I think the the question I would pose is, and you know, the press can be very self congratulatory now. We're you know investigating police misconduct, but you know, very little on the ground reporting. Um, almost always based on court documents. I mean, I know from my own work, it takes time, investment, commitment to do this kind of reporting. And you, apropos those stories I told earlier about a, a murder and a rape I investigated early in my career, yeah. sometimes you you know something happened, but you can't get it to a point where you can close the deal and publish mm-hmm. on it. So, you know, this is hard, hard work, but it's not getting done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And now you have scarcity in the industry, so people can always say, well, we just don't have the resources mm-hmm. or, you know, it's, uh, our priorities are elsewhere. But I think the reality is, I mean, different publications have different strengths and, and weaknesses. The, the most telling quote for me is um, from a Tribune editor. This is some years ago. They put together a team, I think it was initiated more by reporters than editors, a team of investigative reporters to do a deep dive into sort of following the money in terms of the plan for transformation. Mm-hmm. You know, who was getting a good idea and yeah. a really good reporter was, was the lead on it. And they published the first installment of what was expected to be like a six month mm-hmm. project and series. And then the Tribune pulled the plug on it. <laughs> and the quote um, from an editor, and I have this from multiple sources in the meeting where I told the disappointed editors that they weren't going to go forward with the series, was, it's just not our demographic. <laughs> <laughs> I don't see that changing, you yeah. know, radically with the legacy mm-hmm. media. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, let's just do the one yeah, word check, check out. out. Yeah. How? Well, we, we got to, we, we all right. All right. All right. <laughs> <laughs> um, in one or more words, how are you feeling? What's something from the conversation that's sticking with you? Oh, it's just, it's been a, I'm feeling pleasure. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, that's a good thing to feel. Yeah. And I think the thing that's most sticking with me is that the way you guys structured the conversation really foregrounded the relationship of the kind of work that I and my colleagues do to the um, energies of the movement. Yeah. So seeing that mm-hmm. as things that are distinct, mm-hmm. you know, but that, that interact. And, you know, for me, I titled the f- piece that broke the Laquan McDonald story, 16 shots. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> and <laughs> to have 16 shots become the anthem mm-hmm. of the movement. Mm-hmm. And then to have it mature in all these other ways. So, you know, Vic Mensa's piece mm-hmm. and and the ultimate variation on that theme of um, the clerk of the court in the Van Dyke trial. Reading off the Reading numbers, those yeah. 16 counts. Mm. That was the ultimate mm. of that. Those interactions to me are incredibly gratifying mm-hmm. and exciting. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. How what about you? you? Got? Uh, I got a lot, man. I got a lot. I'm really thinking deeper of how much we we need this information to strengthen our strategies. But I, I feel a loving challenge. We got to make you an abolitionist because I think you are. <laughs> and and I think it is it was a, a, a fair, not critique, but for lack of a better word, a fair and honest critique of the limitations of just our capacity, right? Because I think what you articulated... Is uh, the same thing that uh, you... Yeah. yeah. And so how do we make it more clear that we're not saying 
you know, let's just erase it all and figure it out. Let's just talk about these ideals. How do we draw out that that path of these concrete steps towards another system? Because uh, I think the trial is is really telling as to what policing is. I think, you know, the FOP's position, similar to how I think CTU is more important to understand the politics of education than CPS, I think the FOP is more important than CPD, mm -hmm. right? And so for everyone to see that video and FOP be so adamant about this is what we do, this is what we're supposed to do, yeah. this is, you know, this is right, I think is a, is a true claim of the inhumanity of what militarism is, right? And, and connecting policing to militarism. Sometimes they hand it to you. You know? And, <laughs> they spell it all yeah. out for you. And so... FOP is good at that. Right, yeah, right. Yeah. And so trying to, to think of... My, my takeaway is, all right, how do we articulate for the people who know the information as I think, you know, you represent that um, to understand that this vision is tangible yeah. and it, it is not abstract and idealistic and it, it is about creating better solutions than just erasing the harms. Yeah, it's not knocking the buildings down. Mm -hmm. It's building it's, yeah. something, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And then for me, the thing that sticks out in my mind right now is think about how you placed this city in the context of things around the world. And specifically, like the Havel example, and that's my dad was always talking to me about that. He yeah, studied, that's your jam. That's, <laughs> he, he plays Balkan music and like studied that political structure and was involved. You know, yeah. so starting to connect those dots and like what are the lessons and shortcomings and successes that we can learn from other moments when people said what if and then actually did the thing that is very inspiring and useful for me because like sometimes you know when you're place-based you forget about other places sometimes yeah. you know <laughs> what if we're free i think that's a big takeaway mm, yeah thank you for coming through and chopping it up with us the uh Truly the Jeff Goldblum of human rights journalism. <laughs> Thank you for being here. <laughs> that reference is over my head. But I, <laughs> the people will get it. Okay. There's like 45 people cracking up right now. For those who don't know, we'll, we'll, we'll talk after. No, no, Google it. Thank you for being here. Thanks. My pleasure. Appreciate you. Much yeah. love to the people. Peace. <laughs> this episode of Ergo is brought to you by Cards Against Humanity. They asked us not to read an ad, so we didn't. <laughs>